All right, and good morning, Ridgepoint Church. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Do me a favor. I like wonderful. That's a great response. Look at the person next to you and say, this is the most wonderful time of the year. And I am choosing to enjoy it. Listen, it's, it's about to get crazy if it's not already crazy. Uh, life gets so busy and so hectic. And, and for most people, Christmas is the time of the year that we enjoy, unless either we had a bad experience maybe growing up or didn't have a great Christmas experience, whatever. But for most of us, Christmas is meant to be enjoyable. Uh, but then life happens and, and we get busy and it's going to this and it's office parties and it's, it's trying to make sure everything gets done in, in a short amount of time and, and, and we get stressed and, and everything is kind of crazy. So, so here's what I want you to do this year is to choose to enjoy it. It's supposed to be enjoyed, uh, so choose to enjoy it. Because Christmas is all about that, that, that enjoyable time and spending time with family and friends, and, and it gets so busy and so rushed that we have to make a, a conscious effort on our part to choose to say, I'm going to enjoy this particular season. Uh, we're excited about Christmas here at Rich Point Church. We're talking about a thrill of hope. I've actually been reading a book to kick off December uh, that's kind of about the journey of Christmas and some different things. And, and in it, the author kind of, he's an awesome pastor, great pastor, but, but, it, but he shares this information. He says, listen, uh, Christmas is a sacred holiday, but it's also a secular holiday. And, and don't get caught up in hate because it seems like one side wants to shame the other side and vice versa, that there are enjoyable parts of both. And, and so be careful not to shame the other side, but to truly enjoy this season because it's meant to be an enjoyable time of the year. In fact, I remember when I was growing up as, as a young kid, especially in, in younger elementary, mid-elementary years, uh, just the anticipation that Christmas brought. Uh, my brother and I, I was the older of, of two brothers, my brother Eric and I, we loved Christmas. Christmas was a big deal around my parents' house, and, and so we just really got into the Christmas season. Uh, but about midway through our elementary school years, I think I was about third grade, uh, we started a brand new tradition. I'm not even sure where it came from or why we started to do this, but I had one uncle that was really close to our family. He was my mom's brother, and his name was Uncle Charlie. And Uncle Charlie was really close to our family, and he was, he was divorced, lived by himself. And so we started going to his house, uh, just as my brother and I would go to his house Christmas Eve, and we stay the night. And the thing we loved about it was Uncle Charlie, every day of the year, woke up really, really early in the morning. So on Christmas Day, when my brother and I want to wake up early, that's just his normal schedule, so he'd wake up really early, then we'd drive to my parents' house and do Christmas there as well. So it's kind of a big deal, as an early uh, tradition for us, but the thing I remember, especially as, as a young kid in elementary school, that was just so frustrating about that particular experience, I liked a lot of it, but there was a process that Uncle Charlie went through in terms of Christmas Eve. That was a little bit frustrating because we were so excited about the product of Christmas, we couldn't wait to get there, that the process that he had us go through seemed like so tedious and so overwhelming at that point. But it began by early, maybe mid-afternoon on Christmas Eve, he had to work half a day. And so he would come by and he'd pick us up and he would drive us to his house, which is about 45 minutes to, uh, from my parents' house. And so we'd drive to his house and when we got there, the very first thing out of his mouth was, all right, we have to plan dinner what do you guys want to do for dinner? Now, Uncle Charlie had a refined side and a not-so-refined side. When it came to dinner, it was the refined side. He said, let's go and, and let's, let's pick out something nice for dinner. And Uncle Charlie, in his mind, was thinking, we're going to go to some nice place, have a sit-down dinner, enjoy kind of a slow dinner, and, and enjoy the night. But he asks a third grader and a first grader, what do you want for dinner? And what do you think our response was? 
McDonald's. Everybody in both services nailed that one. In third grade, I'm like, we want McDonald's. And, and Uncle Charlie, still to this day, he doesn't let us live that down. Uh, so, so we'd go get McDonald's. Later on, as the tradition continued, uh, we end up as teenagers wanting pizza. They had a really nice pizza place there. And, and, and it was always not exactly what Uncle Charlie wanted, but he went, okay, whatever. You're my nephews. I'll go do that. Uh, so we'd have dinner, and then normally it'd mean we'd come back, and, and Uncle Charlie had purposely saved some of the decorating of the tree. Uh, he had these ornaments. He traveled the world, so he had all these like really fancy ornaments that as a young kid, you didn't appreciate at all. They weren't really exciting, but he'd hang the ornaments with us. And, and, and then we might watch a movie, which was where Uncle Charlie's not-so-refined uh, part came out. I remember at a young age, he actually had us watch Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke, which I have no idea why you're showing that to. I didn't share that in, information in the first service, by the way. Uh, but, but it was like this, this, this weird conglomeration of experiences. I don't know why I share that here. That's, but, but, but then he'd finish out the night almost every time. He'd finish out the night by saying, okay, he was really refined in the area that he loved classical music. And so he'd finish out the night, he had all these CDs of the Florida Orchestra playing Bach and Beethoven. And, and so even in elementary school, he would pop in the CD of Bach, uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or something. And that's how we'd finish out that Christmas Eve with, with Uncle Charlie was listening to this, this Beethoven. And I'm like, this is the most boring, <laughs> just excruciating thing right now. Like, we just want Christmas to get there, and, and we're listening to classical music. I think he was hoping it put us to sleep, which it never did, because we'd eventually end up in his guest room, and we so anticipated the next morning. Like, we couldn't wait for the next morning to get there that we had a hard time sleeping. We didn't exactly love the process of getting to Christmas. We were concerned with the product. We wanted the gifts, and we were really excited about the, the product and so the process seemed tedious and, and it seemed too drawn out and too, too stretched out. And we just wanted to get to what for us was the product of Christmas. I think sometimes when it comes to, obviously here at church, we're going to talk more about the, the sacred side of Christmas. When it comes to the sacred side, I think we too, as followers of Jesus, sometimes are so, uh, we see the process of getting there as a little bit tedious and, and a little bit boring. We want to get to the good stuff. We know the story of Christmas. We know the account in Luke's gospel of the birth narrative of Jesus, and we know what all of that meant. And we get excited about the angels heralding the birth of the coming of Jesus, and, and glory to God in highest, and the earth peace, goodwill towards men. We so anticipate that part of the story that when it comes to just the, the other stuff, the process of getting there, sometimes we miss out on that. And so this year, as we kick off this series, we're calling A Thrill of Hope. We're going to spend a little bit of time on the process. Eventually, we'll get to the product of Christmas, and we'll talk about the gift that Christmas brought. But before we ever get there, we're going to talk about the process of what it took to get there. You see, A Thrill of Hope is taken, it's a lyric from one of my favorite Christmas songs of all time, O Holy Night. And in it, it says that there's this thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. And if we rewound 2020 Christmases ago, to that first Christmas. And we knew what the world was like then. It was, it was full of, of, racial, of racial tension. It was, it was full of political turmoil. It was, it was full of uh, this military oppression and just a lot of questions and, and false hope. And the people were looking for a real hope. It doesn't sound too dissimilar from what we're experiencing right now. In fact, maybe more so than ever in my life, I see a world that is desperate for true hope. 
saying, man, we're having all this turmoil and all this tension and all of this stuff that's happening. And the same hope then is the hope that our world, is the hope that our country needs now. Deliverance isn't going to come in the form of a political party or in terms of a person that we really, really like. The true hope is only going to be found in Jesus himself. So 2020 Christmases ago, the world gathered and said that that thrill of hope is finally born. Now, the crazy thing is, if, if you know anything about the, the Jewish background, they had been praying and longing for the Savior to come, this Messiah, this promised one to come for centuries. For 400 years, it's silent. They're not hearing from prophets or anything. And in that time, there were people who came who said, hey, I'm the Messiah. And for a short time, they'd have a following that would follow them for a season, and they die, and the movement died with them. So the world was used to, the Jewish people were used to a false hope. And the world had grown tired of false hope, much like I'm convinced today the world is tired of the false hope that sometimes even we as a church can lift up. We can say, if we just follow this or do this, and we have all these prescribed patterns, but it's not pointing back to the true hope, a thrill of hope that's only found in Jesus. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. And we're going to go back this morning to the process that leads us to the product. In fact, if you're like me, and I'm going to ask this, I'm going to ask of this service. If you're like me, sometimes we have a tendency to do that. Uh, the Bible has in a couple of different places, the genealogies, where it's this person gave birth to this person, who gave birth to this person. And can, can we be honest for a second? Sometimes that appears to be tedious. Like how many of y'all have ever been reading the Bible and you get to all those lists of names and you're like, I'm just going to skip through that part. <laughs> get down to the good. Is, that, is it just me? Am I? Okay. But everybody's like, I've done that before. I've been reading and there's this whole list of names and I don't know who they are. And so I'm just going to skip through that part. I'm going to get to the good stuff. I think we've all been guilty of doing that in the past. Today, I want to look at the genealogy of Jesus. And when we first do that, we're like, whoa, this is going to be tedious. And, and I promise I'm going to try my best to, to not make it that. Because it's there for a reason. God didn't put that in his word to say, hey, I want everybody who ever reads this just to skim through it and not pay attention to it. There's a reason why it's there. And I want to dig into this this morning. So if you have your Bible, we're going to start off in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the very first verse of the New Testament. And it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Then two names are mentioned. He's mentioned as the son of David and the son of Abraham. These are two prominent names. In fact, even people who aren't familiar at all with, with the Bible and haven't, haven't really studied in church or anything, uh, sometimes we'll talk about like King David, and a lot of people know who King David is, and, and a lot of people know who Father Abraham is, if nothing else, you know, like left arm, right arm, uh, Father Abraham type stuff. Like we, we know at least those two names. Well, it's important that we're about to get into the genealogy of names that might be familiar or might be unfamiliar to, to many, but it begins with two names that are more familiar. Now, there's a long time in between these two. In fact, just the first section that we're about to read, which is only about five and a half verses, uh, is about 950 years worth of genealogy. But the first two aren't necessarily in order as much as they're just two prominent names. He begins by saying he's it's the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, meaning he's from the line of King David, but he's also from the line of Abraham, of Father Abraham himself. And that's important because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, this prophecy is given about David. He was this, this king. He had his flaws, but he's called a man after God's own heart. 
And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says this about David. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So there's this promise in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel that, that David's kingdom, that his throne, is going to be established forever. So it's through Jesus ultimately, because the, the kingdom rises and it falls, but it's through Jesus that that throne is established forever. And then it also says about Abraham back earlier, much earlier in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, it says, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So both of these prophecies about these big two prominent Old Testament characters come true through the lineage uh, that they have through their family, eventually in the person of Jesus. So we see in verse 1 some pretty prominent names. Verse 2 is some more names you might be familiar with. It says, it, it picks up the genealogy with Abraham. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah. But then as we get there into verse 3, it says, Judah the father of Perez and, Terah, and Zerah by Tamar. Now we don't have time to stop at every one of the names that we come across because there's going to be a lot of names in the next couple of minutes. We're going to stop and rest on a couple of names. And the first name we're going to stop and rest on is the name Tamar. It's interesting to note because every time you read a genealogy, especially the genealogy of, of, of the Jewish people, uh, their famous Jewish historians, every time the genealogy mentions the, the husband or the father in that genealogy, this person gives birth to this person, and that's kind of how historians did it, and that's how the Jewish people did it. But yet, for the first time here, and in, in relatively short order, the next couple of verses, we're going to see four women's names appear. And a fifth one appears much later, which is, which is Mary, the mother of Jesus. But it's interesting to note, because as we're about to read, the names that Jesus, or the names that are used about the line of Jesus are full of people from varied backgrounds. The very fact that uh, he'd, he'd mentioned women, and not just women, but we're going to read the, the, the names of some of these people, uh, was going against what culture was saying. I think it's beginning the show that's a little bit indicative of the ministry that Jesus is going to have. And so the first one that's mentioned here in verse 3 is Tamar. Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. Then we pick up in verse 4. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. So two more women's names are mentioned. Rahab and Ruth are mentioned there. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And then it says in verse 6, And Jesse, the father of David the king. So in that short amount of time, in those basically five and a half verses, we've gone through 900, or about 850 years of Jewish antiquity and Jewish history. And in that, we've seen how the line of Jesus has gone through different people and the names that have been mentioned, and we'll pick up one more, because in the next part of, of, chapter, of, of verse 6, it says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So another wife is mentioned, that's Bathsheba. So in those verses that we just read, four women's names are mentioned, which is very much against their culture. But in addition to that, three of the women whose names are mentioned are people who don't exactly have the best reputation. And yet we see in the lineage of Jesus that it's this people that are just normal people. If it, if it were you and me, and if we're planning out the story of Jesus, if you and I were responsible for writing a story, and by the way, I'm glad that we're not, 
But if, if it were you and I, we'd pick out, man, let's pick out the best and brightest, the people of the best reputation, because we want to make sure that lineage is pure and, and it's right. But God says, no, this is how it really is. These are people, real people, and I'm going to give you their names, I'm going to give you their stories, and we're going to document who they are so that you know the line wasn't perfect. The plan was perfect, but the line itself wasn't perfect. It was filled with people that were fallen and broken. So he mentions some of those names. As we get into verse 6, we start to get into the kings of Israel. And even in the kings, there are some that are great and powerful and some that are not. Some that are righteous and some that are not righteous. And so we pick up with David. It says that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. I'm so glad we don't use these names anymore. Um, Someone congratulated me after the service, first service, on just being able to pronounce all the names, which I'm not sure I got them all right, but probably neither are you, so we're good. It says, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the same time of the deportation to Babylon. So we just read a whole lot of names of kings and, and leaders, and, and we read all those names. So, okay, but why is all that there? Why is all that mentioned? Because you had in David, you had a strong and powerful king who for the most part, he made mistakes, but he was righteous. And you have others that are righteous and not righteous. And if you study the history of, of the tribes of Israel and see the rising and the falling, but the very last one was an evil king by the name of Jeconiah who ultimately, because of his choices, it leads to the downfall of the kingdom. And when it leads to the downfall of the kingdom, it says that the line is ending there, the line, the physical presence of the king, although God still chooses to use that line that eventually leads to Jesus. So why all these names? Why all this stuff? When we read all of this, why is all of this included in Scripture? Like it doesn't seem up to this point to be really inspiring or something we'd normally want to talk about. But here's why this is here. Because his line is full of people just like you and me. Man, there are people who are morally right, and there are people who are morally fallen. Man, the, his line, Jesus' line is full of, of, of people who made a bunch of mistakes. His line is people that were prostitutes in his line. It was a picture of the ministry that Jesus was about to enter into. There are people of all kinds of races. There was racial tension between the Jews and the Gentiles, and his line included both. There were kings, there were peasants. There were people who were free, there were people who were slaves. There are people from all these different backgrounds. And it says the line is just full of people. And into that broken world, which was pictured by his line, Jesus comes not just to offer hope, but for you and I to be the hope. That for us who are fallen, who are broken, we look at Jesus and say, he is just as much our hope. If this is his line, if this is the type of person that his line is made up of, there's hope for you and me. How many have ever looked at your family and said, man, my family's jacked up? <laughs> we know that. And Jesus says, listen, I can empathize. I can empathize because look at the lineage that I had. Look at the family I was born into. I can understand what it is that you're going through. And so God gives us, through the writing of Matthew here, God gives us this picture to say that no matter what we have, no matter what it is that we go through, there are people just like that. There are kings and servants 
They're morally upright and, and adulterers, Jews and Gentiles, free and in prison, men and women. It didn't matter. His, gene, his genealogy, his ministry was inclusive, and he was coming to bring hope to all people. Hope that is necessary right now for our world right now. Listen, I, and I'm being serious. Never in my life in 41 years have I ever seen our world like it is right now and desperately need of the hope. And some of the, the stuff we're dealing with, though it's vastly different, is eerily similar. And our world is desperate and hungry for that hope. And Jesus comes and says, I have come to be the hope for all people. It doesn't matter the background. It doesn't matter their skin color. It doesn't matter uh, their religious affiliation, their political affiliation. None of that stuff matters. Their sexual orientation, that doesn't matter. I've come to bring hope to all people regardless of our brokenness. Regardless of what it is that has separated us from God, Jesus is the answer and Jesus is that hope. And so we look at the scripture and say, man, that's a lot of names. And he comes to bring hope. And not, not just to offer hope, though he does offer hope, not just to offer hope, but to be hope. Now, two things as we read this, two things of note. If you're a note taker, write these two things down. Number one is this. The gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel is a real thing that took place. The gospel simply means, when we talk about the gospel in church, we mean the good news of Jesus, the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the good news of Jesus. And the good news is good news. It's not just good advice. So we read this story, and the reason I think why God put that there is because he could have begun the story once upon a time. There was a guy named Jesus. And it saved us a lot of time and a lot of headache of reading through all those names. But it starts to sound like a fable. It's just a fairy tale. It's not real. And there are people in our culture today that want us to believe that. In fact, they don't mind when they have their secular view of what, Christianity, or what Christmas is about. They don't mind the baby Jesus being introduced to that as kind of a metaphor for what's needed in the world. But when we read this, this is concrete. This is solid. He's giving us names. He's giving us a lineage. Because he wants us to know these are real people. That when Jesus is born, it isn't some fable that's made up some fairy tale. But this is a real event that took place. And here's the historical data behind it. And here's all these names and here's the line. And the gospel becomes the good news of Jesus. Not just good advice. This is a real story. He doesn't come to give us good advice on how to live life. There are a bunch of religions today that give us good advice on how to live life. Say, you should do this, and you should do this. And there's a lot of people that want to give good advice on how to, to, to live a good life. He doesn't come to give us good advice on how to live life. He comes to be life. He's, I've come to give you life and give you life more abundantly, and that life is found in him. And so it separates him from every other religious teacher that he didn't come to teach us good principles on how to be a good person. Other religions try to do that. He came to be life. And the second thing is this. The process is producing the product. The process itself leads us to the process. See, what we read was all about the process it took to get to the birth of Jesus. And we want to glimpse over and get to what's important. But the process itself is, is leading to the product. And so God's saying, listen, here's a genealogy. Here's what it's going to take for us to get there. And the process is important for us to get there and appreciate the product. 
See, what I didn't realize when I was, was younger was that I wasn't appreciating the process of Christmas. I was so excited to, to get to the good stuff. As a kid, I think we understand that. Like as, as young kids are so excited and we see gifts. But here's the thing I'm convinced of. Is that inside of every one of us, there's still little kids screaming to get out. In fact, how many of you looking at this just want to come up and open up the gift right now? Is, is it just, like, like I see a gift and I'm like, man, I just want to open up and, and know what's in it. But there's a, a process that leads to the product. And what I was experiencing as, as a young person, I didn't get this until I had matured some, was that the more I appreciated the process, the more powerful the product became. If I'm so quick to hurry through all that other stuff, the product itself kind of came and went. It wasn't all that important. The process is producing the product. This was God's plan. God's eternal plan for man. And it isn't so much, even though there is a birth narrative, and the birth narrative is about this idea that Jesus, who was God in the flesh, became man. He was God incarnate, we say. And there is a birth that takes place, but it's more about a coming than it is about a birth. This was God's plan for us, for you and me. And in an eternity past, he had this plan for us. And it was about his coming that was much bigger. Even though there's a process involved to get us to the product, it was much bigger than just the birth. It's the coming of Jesus. It's what we celebrate. More than just a simple birth, it's a coming. It's the development of, of God's plan. The process leads to the coming of Jesus, which is why we can read. I've got a bunch more names to get through till we get to the end. It says this, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheathel, and Sheathel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. And then we get to verse 16, and it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who's now the fifth woman mentioned in the genealogy, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so we read that and realize, man, God, all of that was necessary. All of that was taking place. Those are real people who the line of from Abraham through David, eventually through Mary and Joseph to Jesus, that line went through eventually to get us through the process, which we have to grow to love and appreciate to get us to appreciate even more the product of who Jesus is. A process that actually began much earlier than even Matthew's writing. If you have your Bible, slip back real quick to Isaiah chapter 9. Over the next several weeks, we're going to look more at this verse in depth. But Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, verse that's probably familiar to most of us. This prophecy about the coming of Jesus says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. And in this we see four names of Jesus that we're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks. It says, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, each of the next four weeks, we're going to talk about those names, beginning today with His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, when I, I remember when I was growing up as a kid, 
uh, we had to memorize this verse for something we were doing and, and some, uh, some, some events, some concert we were doing. And I memorized this verse. When I memorized this, I memorized it as his name shall be called Wonderful, comma, Counselor, as if those two things were, were not connected. But there's no comma there. He's called. His first name is that he is a wonderful counselor. Why is he a wonderful counselor? Because we've seen his past. We've seen what the genealogy looked like. And his genealogy was mirrored in the way that he did ministry. And so he is surrounded by people that were broken. He who is God became flesh for us. And he went through things just like we did. He grew up just like we did. He had some of the same pressures. He dealt with friends that loved him and abandoned him. He dealt with being accused unjustly for something he'd never done and ultimately being persecuted and and killed because of that. And when we look for someone to go to for counsel, we're looking for someone who's been there through it all. So I, I know you've lived through this and you've had some measure of success. And so now because of that, I want to be able to turn to you for advice. So the first name of Jesus that is mentioned here is that he is called the Wonderful Counselor. That when we go to him, when you and I, in the midst of our brokenness and our, our despair, when we want to cry out and say, God, this doesn't make sense anymore. Like, like, I don't understand why life isn't working out. Life has been really hard. I don't understand that anymore. Jesus says, I can identify. I'm a wonderful counselor because I've been there. I don't just know by knowledge. I know by experience. I've been there. I've been right where you're at. I know how you feel. And so when we turn to Jesus as our wonderful counselor, it's not just, again, him giving us good news and, or good advice and saying, go out and do this. He's giving us the good news. I've been there. I know that. I know, I know where hope is found. It's found in and only in the person of Jesus. One author put it this way. She said, the incarnation means that for whatever reason, God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death. He has nonetheless had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. He he can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He came to offer hope, but also to be hope, to show us the process leads to the product. As a child, I didn't get that. Like I really didn't. When I went little... Third grade JJ with his brother Eric, we were so excited about the, the product that was coming. Christmas was here and we just wanted to open up the gifts that I didn't appreciate the process at all, especially when I was younger. I just wanted to fly through all that stuff and let's just get to Christmas and open up the gifts. But I was thinking about that this week, last couple weeks actually. And all those presents through all the years, and we had gifts at Uncle Charlie's house, we had gifts at my parents' house, and it was a lot of gifts every year and multiple years. Over a decade's worth of gifts. I can remember three gifts throughout all those years. But I remember the process like it was yesterday. I remember having McDonald's. I remember watching movies, regardless of how sketchy they were. I remember putting on ornaments on a tree with my uncle. Not being able to sleep and talking to my brother. Even listening to the Beethoven. I wonder why it's all part of Christmas. But the more I've grown to appreciate the process, the greater my love for the product is. And the same is true. 
if we're trying to follow Jesus, the more we appreciate the process it took to get here. This was all part of God's plan. And so we read sections of Scripture that sometimes don't make a lot of sense to us. It's easy to gloss over and say, okay, that must not be important because I can't understand it right away. And so I'm going to go to what I do understand and what is familiar. But sometimes I have to dig into what's unfamiliar and say, okay, how do I understand this a little bit better? How can, how can my, my, my depth of, of knowledge about Jesus grow so that I can appreciate the product even more? And I promise for every one of us, this is a journey. A journey that's going to take time and it's going to, and it's going to, it's going to take effort and, and, and really digging in. But if we really want to know the product of what Jesus brings, it comes with an appreciation of what's the process that took place for him to get there. And the deeper we grow to love the process, the more we appreciate the product of what Jesus brings. Let's pray. God, I want to begin this prayer right now, this, this time. Thanking you for processes in our life. They're not always easy and sometimes they're tedious and, and God, they could appear on the outside to even be boring. But God, they're not. The process itself leads us to a product and the more we appreciate the process, the more we can, can really appreciate the product. And so God, I would just pray right now that whatever processes we're going through, that we grow to understand what the process is. God, even in our knowledge of who you are and the knowledge of what Jesus went through and, and how this is all part of your plan, God, help us to dig in this Christmas season and say, I want to know more and I want to dig deeper. And, and God, I want to love you even more than I have in previous years and even in, in previous parts of this year. God, I want to have a depth to my faith that is beyond what I have right now. God, I want to make a difference in this world that is hungry and desperate for hope. God, let the process refine us and produce in us even a greater product. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.